evening, church family. It's uh, one of the most important days in the church calendar year, and it's always hard to find just the right tone. We call the day good, and yet behind me is a, an instrument of death. And so tonight is why we, as followers of the Lord Jesus, uh, we come to the reality of what he did for us, and we celebrate that, although the feeling is very somber, but as the great S.M. Lockridge preached, Sunday is a coming. Uh, so I, I pray tonight is a time for our church family to think deeply in a culture that doesn't think deeply about many things, to really think about who God is, who we are, what he did in Jesus, why what happened on that cross governs all of reality and all of eternity, when you think of it that way. So this comes as a blessing to the believer, and I think a deep challenge to the non-believer, but I pray a deep blessing and there'd be real communion with God tonight. So we begin with the 8th century B.C. prophet Isaiah. Surely he, was, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So if you would, please stand for this great first hymn. Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain our searing lost, the Father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory We behold him tonight Behold the man upon the cross my sin upon his shoulders ashamed i hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers it was my sin that held him there until it was a brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. 
but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His have paid my ransom. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Amen. What great hope we have in Christ tonight. Great to worship the Lord together. You can be seated. Well, church, good evening. It's wonderful to be with you in this most holy week, on this most holy day, when we reflect on the sufferings of our Lord Jesus together. Now, I'm going to start with a fun fact. Okay, today, as you know, is April 7th, 2023. That's not the fun fact. The fun fact is, on this day, scholars and theologians, they believe that this was the day, April 7th, that our Lord was crucified. That in the year either 30 or 33 AD, so roughly 1,993 years ago to the day, the, good, the first Good Friday took place. You know, there's no disputing the historical event of Jesus of Nazareth's crucifixion. Certainly, Biblical, extra-biblical sources confirm it. But what has been disputed over the millennia is the significance of this historic day. And for skeptics, you know, Good Friday, it's a bit of a strange holiday, you know, mostly irrelevant. Um, even if Jesus was the most moral man inspiring millions to live better lives, why fixate on his death? Why talk of it, study it, sing of it? You know, celebrate his teaching, his life, sure, but not his gruesome death. What relevance does that have to the challenges and the issues we face today? And for others, the event of Christ's death is significant because of its impact on the course of human history across the globe. I mean, religions have been formed, empires, civilizations have been shaped, countless uh, benevolent movements, revivals, institutions, hospitals, universities, even time. Time is marked by the life and death of Jesus Christ. And still for others— the significance of this Good Friday is more than just an impact on history. Jesus' death is seen as a victory over human sin. Its significance is spiritual. It has to do with forgiveness before God. So let me ask you, what is this day for you? Uh, if someone were to ask you tonight why the cross of Jesus is significant, um, what would you tell them? There's a 11th century theologian and philosopher, his name was Anselm of Canterbury. Only Austin knows who that is. Um, <laughs> and he was captivated by a question that would become one of his most well-known works. And he asked it in Latin. His question was, Cur Deus Homo? Why the God-man? And Anselm sought to understand the depths of Jesus' incarnation because he marveled at it. Now, how could a holy, righteous, transcendent God become a man? 
And so I decided I want to be cool like Anselm too, and I developed my own question in Latin, and I may have looked at Google Translate to <laughs> get this one. Here's the question tonight. Cur crux dei homo. Why the God-man's cross? We're asking why the cross, not just to know the answer, but to marvel at it. Because I wonder as, you know, as, as Christians who understand the importance of Jesus' death, if we forget to marvel, if we fail to be captivated by it, and we hear of it so much, we get to a place, maybe it just becomes too familiar, it stops affecting our lives, it stops leading us to worship. You know, we believe it's important, but it doesn't impact Monday through Saturday, maybe all that much. And Jesus' atonement for us can become about as relevant as it is to the skeptic. So the why questions bring us back. They help us, or at least they should help us, marvel again at the Lord. Why would a holy God satisfy his own wrath against sinners through his only Son? So to put it simply tonight, why the cross for the God-man? the Christ. Let's we begin, let's, let's ask the uh, Spirit of Christ to help us. Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we praise you. We thank you for this night. And we pray that, Lord, you would help us to marvel at you, to remember Christ, to reflect on the sizable uh, atonement he has made for our souls. Help us, Father. Only you can draw us to yourself. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So why the cross? I, I, think, I think many see the reason, or maybe many, see the reason for the cross of Christ as a response to human sin. It's kind of like a redemption plan B. Uh, you, you hear people speak of the fallen world as something God didn't intend. He made everything perfect, but man messed it up. Um, it's even in some Christian music, right? This idea that it's, this isn't all how it's supposed to be. Um, Chris Tomlin, in fact, uh, has a catchy song about heaven. It's called Home. Maybe you've heard it. It starts out, the very first line of the, of the song is, this world is not what it, is, what it was meant to be. All this pain, all this suffering, there's a better place waiting for me in heaven. Now, not trying to ruin Tomlin for you. I'm, I'm a fan. But, you know, I understand what he's saying there, right? He says, God doesn't delight in pain or in suffering. But this world is what it was meant to be. God's plan of redemption is a plan A. In fact, it's referred to as an eternal plan. That's how the uh, writer of Hebrews describes Jesus' sacrifice. He calls it the blood of the eternal covenant in chapter 13, verse 20. The blood of the always will be and always was covenant. And a quick refresher on that meaning of that word covenant, by the way, Covenant, covenant in the ancient Near East was a binding promise that was ratified often by a sacrifice. Blood was shed to communicate the binding nature of the promise. It was a way of saying, may I perish if I do not keep this covenant with you. And so God ratified, he sealed his covenant with his people by the sacrifice of the Son of God. And this was always in the plan, eternally, before he created anything. So really, when we go back and and, and view every act of his creating the cosmos, this is really God moving toward his eternal plan to send the Redeemer to the hill at Calvary. So let's try to see this. I want to go all the way back to the very first words of the Bible. 
Genesis chapter 1. They read like redemptive prose. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And that sounds like what would become of the human heart. Formless, empty, darkness at its depths. Verse 3, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, which builds anticipation for what's to come. The life giver is ready to fill the earth and the heavens with life, because that's what's inherent to the eternal nature of God. He is the life giver. And we'll see, as, as such, he's also the restorer, the redeemer. And so the Lord fills the earth. It's teeming with life and light. And on the sixth day, he makes man, he makes woman. And with his eternal plan of redemption in mind, he says, let us, Father, Son, and Spirit, let us make man in our own image. And so we know right out the gate why God created men and women. To reflect him. To display his attributes. To radiate his goodness. To enjoy him. We were made to image God. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, I, I've heard this before. Why is this important? tonight because this imaging of god includes a fall god plants a lush garden commissions man to keep it and now this might make you a little uncomfortable but who planted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil it wasn't adam it wasn't eve it was god who gave the law not to eat from that tree who allowed the serpent to slither over to eve and persuade her and her husband to rebel it was God. Now, of course, here we got to be careful, right? Scripture is clear that God is not the author of evil, despite his ordaining these things to occur. God uh, cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one, right? James chapter 1. God is light, and in him is no darkness whatsoever. John uses a double negative to indicate there's no possibility of darkness in God. God did not coerce the serpent, nor the man or the woman to sin. God did not rebel against himself. That would be a kingdom divided which can't stand, as Jesus taught. God is in perfect, holy communion within himself, and he's not culpable then for the evil that occurs within his cosmos. But he sovereignly ordained it to advance his eternal purposes. But what do we make of God's question to man after he rebels? Do you remember it? He says, where are you? This isn't an information gathering question. Like, I can't find you. Where are you? Come out. Nor is it a reactionary question. I, I didn't have to expect to look for you. Where did you go? It's redemptive. Why are you hiding from me? Why have you left me? It's personal, relational, it's kind. It's a question that offers restoration. Why won't you come to me again? So right away, God is showing himself to be the redeemer that he is, that he's always been eternally. His plan of redemption shows up right away too, even in the midst of pronouncing his judgment. In his judgment on the evil one, he makes a promise in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis. He says, the woman's offspring, speaking of one person, will crush your head, and your offspring will bruise his heel. In other words, your work of destruction, evil one, will be undone by a coming Redeemer whom you cannot destroy. That's what the Lord says, and here's what he will do. He shows what he will do in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. God sacrifices an innocent animal 
and he fashions its skins to cover the shamed man and woman. Their coverings that they sewed for themselves, futile. The Lord will provide their covering. This is the picture of redemption. The sacrifice of an innocent one to cover the guilty. It's a sacrifice which the Lord himself will provide. This shows up everywhere throughout redemptive history. It's the whole Old Testament. And I wish we had time to really plumb all of that and highlight all these examples. Here's just a few of them. We start with Abraham. The Lord tells Abraham he will provide him a son from whom all the nations will be blessed. Isaac is born, the son of the promise, and God then commands this son to be sacrificed by his father at Mount Moriah, which, by the way, would become the spot for the Jerusalem temple years later. As Abraham would lay his beloved son on the wooden altar and steady his hand with a knife in obedience to his God, the Lord intervenes mercifully, and he provided his own sacrifice for Abraham and for Isaac. You remember the innocent ram caught in a thorny thicket. Later, Joseph demonstrates God's redemption. He's betrayed by his own kinsmen, his own brothers, who out of jealousy uh, threw him in a pit, left him for dead. But God raises Joseph up to save the nation from death and to show mercy to his guilty brothers. Then we have the miraculous exodus, the most seismic redemptive event in all of history, where an intercessor is sent by God to liberate an enslaved people who are freed by the Lord after ten mighty plagues. The death of the firstborn is the tenth and final plague. Any who had the blood of an innocent, a, a spotless male lamb draped across their wooden doorposts wouldn't be harmed by the judgment. God would see the blood, he says, and pass over that house. And this act of God is what freed Israel from her bondage. And we know they'd wander, right, for a long time in the wilderness as freed men and women. Eventually, they receive a covenant from God, a law from God at Mount Sinai. And that law, even, it reflects the holiness and the righteousness of God as much as it reflects his gracious redemption. He had laws for cleansing, for purification, for restoration with God through a sacrificial mediation system. Innocent blood shed on behalf of the guilty, serving as a constant reminder of their need to be redeemed from sin by a sinless Redeemer. Fast forward quite a bit to King David, who knew his sin so well, and he sang, he yearned for a coming Savior. Psalm 103, right? Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good. 300 years later, Isaiah, the prophet, right, foretells that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. He shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. He'll also be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. He will establish a kingdom of justice and righteousness forevermore. And this he will do by bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows himself. He'll be afflicted by God. He'll be pierced for our transgressions. The Lord laying on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, as we read. He will pour out his soul to death. He will be numbered with the transgressors, bearing their sin himself. So is it any wonder that when Jesus comes, 
he sets his face towards Jerusalem. He sets his face toward the cross. This promised offspring of Eve, the son of David, the son of God, Jesus the Christ, says, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So every teaching of Christ, every healing, miracle, every time he raised someone from the dead, it was to demonstrate that this is the one. This is the one God was providing for the guilty. This was the sacrifice the Lord was putting forth for sinners. The author of Hebrews wrote, when Christ came into the world, he said this, quoting Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure, God. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. When you survey the Gospels, you see the determination of Jesus to walk in his Father's will all the way up to Calvary. He not only predicted the details of his death several times we have recorded with his disciples, but he knew the hour. He spoke often of his death as his hour. When his enemies, uh, you know, wanted to stone him or arrest him, they couldn't. Why? Scripture says because his hour had not yet come. But toward the end of his pu public ministry, Jesus would say the hour has come for the Son to be glorified. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So at his final Passover meal with the disciples, it was, it was Jesus who would turn to Judas, whose feet he had just washed humbly. And he says, what you are going to do, do quickly. John heard Jesus shortly thereafter pray, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him, and this is eternal life, listen to this, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Eternal plan. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden. And there he'd be met by Judas and an armed battalion of soldiers and officers, possibly hundreds gathered to arrest him, clubs and swords and... Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward 
he came forward and he said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And when he said that, I am he. They drew back and they fell to the ground. Hundreds of men fell to the ground. And so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I told you that I'm he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken to his father when he prayed, of those whom you have given me, I've lost not one. Simon Peter reacted with a sword, right? He took a sword and he just lopped off an ear. He was upset. Jesus said, put that sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? Then they bound him as they bind the festal sacrifice as a lamb led to slaughter. And during his unjust trial in the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night, um, it wasn't man's testimony who could convict him. It was Jesus' own testimony. Once they asked him, tell us plainly, are you the Son of God? Are you the Christ? He said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, which was a divine messianic claim. And they were incensed. They began to beat him and spit on him mercilessly. And early in the morning, they brought him to a Roman governor. And he would prove all the more of Christ's spotless innocence as he tried over and over to declare him guiltless and set him free. But no matter how hard Pilate tried, he couldn't release Jesus. Why? Because it was the will of God the Father to crush him. It was God's will to put Jesus to grief on sinners' behalf. And Christ was entrusting himself to the will of God who judges justly. Pilate couldn't thwart the eternal purposes of God. He would deliver Jesus up to death, but according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So he is sentenced. He's crucified on two beams of wood. And all of redemptive history is pictured here in one moment. Because on either side of Jesus, one on his left and one on his right, are two criminals. Two criminals who were there justly. And as Jesus is seen praying several times from his cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was not one thing he said, it was multiple prayers he made. Father, forgive them. He's caring for his mother. He's crying out to God, reciting the Psalms with the inscription above his head that reads, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And eventually one of the criminals realizes this is a king. This is the king. This is the promised one by whom salvation would come. And so at some point he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And pulling himself up on the nails in order to speak, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise means garden, a heavenly garden. John records that where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. Why does that matter? Because here Jesus is undoing the destruction of that first garden in Eden at the garden at Golgotha. He's crushing the head of that ancient serpent by being crushed by the wrath of God for sin. 
so that the guilty one can enjoy the paradise of God with God. And about noon, around the time that the Passover lambs were beginning to be sacrificed throughout Jerusalem, the sun's light failed and a darkness ensued for three hours, similar to, I would imagine, the ninth plague at Exodus, the three-day darkness there, and it's described in Scripture as a darkness to be felt. Toward the end of the third hour, as the light started to return, Jesus, to fulfill every minute stroke of Scripture, said, I thirst. And they gave him sour wine, and he drank it. This was likely not a mere physical thirst or craving. Jesus was thirsting for his God. He was thirsting for his Father. My soul pants for you. He was thirsting for the eternal glory that was coming to him soon. Knowing all that had been accomplished, Jesus victoriously shouted, Tetelestai, it is finished, literally paid in full. The work of salvation is complete. And he didn't flop over, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The earth cried out, shook violently. The sun's light was beginning to return. The temple priests were preparing for the Passover. They'd be interrupted by a 60-foot thick curtain to the Holy of Holies being torn top to bottom and crashing to the ground. Matthew records that the dead were raised from their tombs and they'd come, come out on Sunday. <laughs> it's remarkable. Even after Jesus' death, he fulfilled Scripture. None of his bones were broken. That's Exodus 12. His side was pierced. Zechariah 12. He was laid in a rich man's brand new tomb. That's Isaiah 53, verse 9. Who has suffered and died like this man? Not one. And that's the conclusion of a bunch of centurions who had witnessed everything of Jesus' sufferings. And no doubt they had participated in maybe thousands of crucifixions before. But after seeing the way Christ died, the events that occurred at his death, they all dropped to their knees, praising God loudly, filled with awe, shouting, surely this man was innocent. Truly, this was the Son of God. Because what else could they say? This is the only rational response after seeing what they saw of Jesus. They had to worship God. They marveled at him. And they were responding only to what they saw in the last six hours. How should we respond, beloved? How much more worship should come from us who know that redemption was eternally in the mind of God, that he planned and promised it from the very beginning, and that all of redemptive history points in one direction to the one who fulfilled every prophecy of himself, who lived sinlessly, who proved to be the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Passover Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. We haven't even fully addressed the why question. Uh, we've addressed much of it, um, but not all of it. Why the cross of Jesus? Here's what we've said so far. The purpose of Christ's death was to destroy the works and the power of the evil one forever. And also to deliver sinners from the eternal wrath of God. The Lord sees the blood of Jesus draped on that wooden cross where his wrath was fully consumed and God's judgment passes over us. And that's enough. We could 
praise the Lord. Stop it here. Amen. Let's go. But there's a question here. What kind of God is this? What kind of God is this? Who is this king of glory? That's the primary purpose of the cross of Christ. It's to display the king of glory as he is. It's there where we see God, his nature, his heart. The cross says, this God, he is the Lord, and there is no other. The cross says, this God is one of justice and boundless mercy. The cross said, this God is one of unfathomable power and purest righteousness. This God, and he alone, saves sinners. He lavishes his grace on the undeserving. So it's not enough to see the cross just as a significant event. Um, we want to see the heart of our God, the Redeemer, in his cross. What kind of compassion is here? What kind of love resides in him? That this all was plan A. That he would desire to go to such incomprehensible lengths to save us. And this is plan A redemption because this is how we best see him and know him. And this leads us to marvel at him. Not just tonight, for all eternity. Praise the Lord. Go back for a moment to the image of the two criminals that are crucified on either side of Jesus. Both of them witnessed the same events that first Good Friday. Both heard what Jesus said, his prayers, but only one marveled at him. Only one saw him as the king, the savior. And brothers and sisters, only one is, he's still marveling today in the paradise of God. What about you? Have we forgotten how to marvel? Will we remain in our sins forever? Don't. Come to the one who promises to give you rest, eternal rest, with him. Let us not marvel at ourselves. Let's marvel at the Lord of glory, our Redeemer. Lord God, you alone are God. There is no other. We see this best in our suffering Savior. His love surpasses knowledge. His determination to bear our sin before you gives us such hope, an eternal covenant with eternal hope. Father, for any tonight who remain skeptical of you, let their doubting lead them to pursue truth and let your truth lead them to be in awe of Christ your Son. For any who've trusted Christ but are still wrestling with a besetting sin or struggle tonight, whether it be addiction to pride or pornography or possessions, whatever it is, would you remind them of your zeal 
for saving them in Christ Jesus? Would you help them trust that since you've done the greater work of saving their souls, you're able to do the work of freeing them from this crippling struggle, from healing their brokenness? For any who trust you, Lord, but are suffering, maybe a lost loved one or a job or health, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you would comfort them with the height and depth and breadth and length of your love, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. And Lord, as we now remember Jesus' suffering as a partaking of his supper, would you help us all to marvel at your salvation? We do praise your name together. Amen. Amen. I'd like to invite the brothers up as we uh, partake of the Lord's Supper together. What a night to do this. His Supper commemorates both the sacrifice that Christ has made and it points forward to the heavenly supper. When Christ returns, he promises that the fruits of his labor on our behalf will prompt a feast and a feast of joy and peace. And celebration. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And when Jesus shared his last Passover with his disciples, um, he applied the rich symbolism of the Passover to himself. Um, how we'll partake tonight is uh, the brothers will distribute uh, the bread and we'll eat it individually. And then they'll also distribute the cup and we'll drink that together, signifying that Christ has saved us personally and intimately as individuals. He's also purchased us as a collective body that belongs to him. We are united in our love for him and for one another tonight, and we remember that by partaking of this wonderful supper. We ask that if you have uh, not trusted Christ uh, for the forgiveness of your sin, that, that you might let the elements pass from you, and we do— urge you, please take this time to consider the significance of the person and the sacrifice of Christ. So, beloved, the unleavened bread symbolizes the sinless body of our Savior offered and broken for you. Let's take it with thankfulness. Um, brothers, may you begin.
uh, Passover, there were, in fact, four cups of wine that were distributed over the course of the meal. And each commemorated God's promise of deliverance for Israel at the Exodus. The third cup was called the cup of redemption, which remembered God's promise when he said, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. It's this third cup that Jesus took. And he gave thanks to God and he said, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's drink together. Father, we yearn for that day. We know your promise is that it is coming soon. Lord, in the meantime, help us to worship you, to marvel at you again. Thank you for the blood of the eternal covenant that was poured out by Christ himself for us. That gives us our hope of being with you. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for this mighty work in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, let's respond. Stand in worship together. Took the blame for 
forgiven at the cross. Now the daylight flees, and now the ground beneath quakes as its maker bows his head curtains torn into dead are raised to life finish the victory cry this the power of the became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath, we stand forgiven at the cross. To see my name written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free, and death is crushed to death, life is mine to live, one through yourselfless love. We sing together. This the power of the cross, Son of God, slain for us. What a love, what a cost we stand forgiven at the cross on which I stand for all eternity. It is my story, my Father's plan. The Son has rescued me. What a gospel, a wealth of peace, my highest joy and my deepest need, now and forever. Oh, 
church is one we do not walk alone we have his spirit as we press on to lead us safely Sing the finished worth of, worth of Christ on Calvary. But how I love the voice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. For he declares his word is finished, and he has spoken this whole to me. But though the sun has ceased its shining, Though the war appeared as lost, Christ has triumphed over evil. It was finished upon that cross. Now the curse, it has been broken. Jesus paid the price for me, for the pardon he has offered. Great the welcome that I receive. Boldly I approach my Father, clothed in Jesus' righteousness. There is no Cross. 
We remember the great victory Christ has over the power of death tonight. Death was once my great opponent. Fear was held on me. But the Son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. One more time. Singing, death was once my great opponent. Fear was held on Son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. Free from every plan of darkness, free to live and free to love. Death is dead and Christ is risen. It was finished upon the cross. It was finished upon the cross. It was finished upon the Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. 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 If you maybe tonight have trusted Christ anew for the first time, we invite you after the service, we're going to have some folks to just pray with you. Or if you have a prayer need or something that you'd like to respond to the Lord, come pray. We'll be at the front here. Our deacon of care, Vance Williams, he'll be up front here with me and some others. So we invite you to that. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 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 Beloved, go in the Lord's peace.